This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today I'm going to talk to you about ocean exploration. And the, the subtext for this talk is the, the need for exploration as a mode of scientific discovery that is complementary uh, but necessary to work with hypothesis-driven research. And you hear a lot about hypothesis-driven research, and I'm going to present some of the counterexamples where we also need discovery or exploration to make scientific discoveries. Um, so I'm going to tell you about a series of vignettes, and, uh, and they're going to span from genes to geology. So I, I figured I would start by telling you a little bit about my scientific interests. And I, I'm interested in microorganisms, in chemicals, the way they interact, and the way that that structures the Earth. Um, so this image here is not of the night sky, but is rather of microorganisms in seawater. The bright spots are bacteria, and the slightly less bright spots are the viruses that tend to infect bacteria. In every teaspoon of seawater, there are roughly 50,000 bacteria and half a million viruses. So it's, it's an ecosystem unto itself that exists in seawater. Don't worry, the, the viruses are not going to infect you. They're there to infect the bacteria. So it's, it's, all, it's all good. Um, but it's an ecosystem where the chemicals and the microorganisms are interacting with one another. And that's where my interest really lies. Um, there's another component to this interest, and that is the, the human dimension, and I won't talk too much about this today. Um, this is a, a cartoon that, uh, that stemmed from a paper uh, from Deepwater Horizon Research about giant bacteria, and you'll notice that uh, Earl's uh, fishing pole is there, but, but he is not. Um, so the interaction of chemicals, microorganisms, and, and people is really where, um, where my research interests lie. And tonight I'm going to talk about at least two of those, the interactions between microorganisms and, um, and chemicals in the context of ocean exploration. So um, when I first arrived at UCSB about 15 years ago, I got very excited uh, by the presence of all the tar on the beach. And, and I know many of you were just here for the summer, and you've probably experienced... Sorry. Uh, some of this tar uh, coming up on the beach, but I got interested in it from a, a scientific perspective of what's really happening. So this is a short video um, that I, uh, snippets that I took from scuba diving in the offshore seeps here. Uh, that is uh, the oil that ends up on your feet. That's one blob of tar. That's methane gas pouring out with it, the white stuff, the little bacteria. And what I'm doing here is trying to, to dislodge that without sticking it on my fingers like like all the rest of the tar. You can see that it's, it's there, it's buoyant, and there it goes. comes up to the surface. Um, these environments, they have uh, oil, they have gas, they're bubbling up. Um, this is another example we call, call a tar paddy that you would find offshore. This is all right here, uh, offshore coal oil point. Um, along with all that oil, there's a tremendous amount of gas that's, uh, that's emanating out, and this is just a tour uh, swimming through one of the more prolific gas seeps. So 15 years ago when I got here, this really excited me. Um, you have chemicals, you've got the ocean, you've got microorganisms. How are they all interacting with one another? Uh, are, the, are the microbes really eating a lot of these chemicals to get energy? Um, are they reducing the toxicity of it? Those are the kinds of fundamental questions uh, that I got interested in. You can see it's a, a great location to... To, uh, to do this kind of work. So 
that, that's up here in the shallows. And what I'm really going to talk about today is, is moving from the shallow waters um, and exploring down into the deep to what we, the areas that we don't know about and some of the discoveries that come from that. So this is the roadmap of, of where I'm going to go. I'll talk very briefly about the study area. I'll talk about the different tools that we use for, for exploration in the deep ocean. Uh, and then I'm going to tell a series of, of hopefully four stories, if I can get to them, uh, before, uh, before finishing up. So the study area uh, is the, uh, the Southern California borderland, and this is a, a bathymetric view of the Southern California borderland. Santa Barbara is located here, UCSB here. Uh, this is the Ventura area, and this is Los Angeles. Um, offshore from Southern California uh, is a series of these basins, these bathtubs that exist, and they're really an extension of the continent, and they've been twisted and turned and compressed by the action of the, the North American plate uh, being uh, drug up by the, uh, by the Pacific plate. And so we have this, this very interesting offshore terrain, and it's in that context that we've been doing exploration over the last almost 20 years now. So these are some of the locations where we have uh, conducted research. Uh, we've actually gone to these locations to conduct studies, and I'm going to highlight a few of these and tell you about some of the things that we've discovered by, by going there. But first I have to tell you a little bit about the tools that we use. Um, so I, I have really five tools that I'll, I'll briefly highlight. Uh, the first uh, is the vessel that we like to use. This is the research vessel Atlantis, 274 feet. It is an excellent vessel for scientific exploration. Uh, it's operated by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and becomes available through the National Science Foundation. So that's our platform that we work from. Uh, on that platform, we uh, can house a number of different tools of exploration. So the first is the human-occupied vehicle Alvin, uh, and this is the Alvin here. It's 18 tons. It will uh, dive currently to depths of 4,500 meters. That makes accessible about two-thirds of the ocean floor. Uh, this is the inside of the sphere, and that's uh, the, the chief pilot, and that's a UCSB undergraduate who was, got to go on that particular dive. Uh, every dive, you do a selfie. Um, so with the submarine, you can explore the bottom of the ocean, you can tool around, and you can collect samples. And I'll, I'll show you a video of, of what it looks like and tell you a little bit more about it um, in a moment. The, uh, the second, uh, third tool of exploration that we like to use are autonomous underwater vehicles. And this is the autonomous underwater vehicle Sentry. Uh, it is effectively an uh, autonomous robot. It's not a drone because there's nobody there controlling it. It's pre-programmed, you drop it in the ocean, you have a payload, a package of instruments that, that you mount inside of it, and it goes off and does its thing for 12 or 24 hours, however long you set it for. Uh, so it's an underwater robot uh, that you can, uh, you can put cameras, you can put mass spectrometers, you can put any instrumentation that you can fit into something the size of a coffee can and uh, pressure house can go, can go into this. Um, Sometimes we use remotely operated submarines. They, they have many of the same capabilities as the human-occupied submarine, um, except there's no pressure sphere and people don't go down to the bottom of the ocean. Rather, they sit up on the ship in a command center. This is the, uh, the command center for this vehicle uh, and control the operations of the vehicle from a cable that leads from the, the ship down to the, to the remotely operated sub. Um, one of the key uh, tools that we use uh, on any of these vehicles, the, the ships or the, the submerged vehicles, um, involves acoustics. And this is something that, that we use to find interesting locations. So what, what is this? This is an acoustic signal. Um, your vehicle sends out a sound. Um, 
in the ocean, and it bounces off of any discontinuity. So anything that has a different mass, that sound will bounce back, and you're recording that as you go. Well, this is great for the seafloor. The seafloor has a different mass, and so different density, rather. And so you get a, a bounce back, and you can map the seafloor. And this has been done um, for, for 70 or 80 years now. Um, however, you can also map discontinuities such as gas in the water. And this is um, something that we imaged uh, this last summer. This was actually from the Gulf of Mexico. So this is a, sea, a very large mound on the seafloor, uh, a very large feature uh, mapped with uh, multi-beam echo sounding. Um, but what we were really keyed in on are these white things coming up. And these are, are streams of gas bubbles. And acoustically, the sound wave hits the gas bubble and bounces back, and you can see a train of gas bubbles in the water. And if you can map that, it points you back to where they came from. So if you're interested in places where gas is coming out at the seafloor, something I'm interested in, um, this is one of the key tools, and we can put it on any of these vehicles. Um, so uh, this is just a brief introduction, a 30-second introduction um, to these vehicles uh, in operation. This is the Atlantis viewed from the submarine. So this is from the Alvin looking back at the Atlantis um, immediately before getting picked up. Uh, this, is the, uh, this is the Alvin, Frank. I think you're, you're here somewhere. This is the scientific payload that you put on the Alvin. Uh, these are the manipulator arms. And that's the remotely operated, or that's the autonomous underwater vehicle being recovered from an overnight operation. So in this case, uh, for 12 hours, that had been off on its own, uh, mapping the ocean and taking pictures and using a mass spectrometer. And then you come, uh, it comes to the surface, you come over, you pick it up, and then you stagger your operations and the sub goes in the water next for eight hours, comes back up, and then the autonomous vehicle goes back in. And so it's this cycle of, of uh, exploration at the seafloor. So th those are the tools. And I want to talk about some of the interesting things, the discoveries that we make, um, and at least I'll point to where some of those things lead. So what we have here uh, is the Southern California borderland. This is the nearest basin. Uh, this is UCSB. We're right about here. Uh, and this is the, uh, what's known as the Santa Barbara Basin. This is our, our nearest offshore basin. It's about 1,800 feet deep. So if you go between, uh, between the university and the islands, it drops down to about 1,800 feet uh, and so I'm going to talk about uh, some work that we've done, really, at, at these three locations um, and some of the discoveries, things that we've found. So uh, first, over at, at this location, um, we, we started working there because we saw some, some very large um, outies. So we, we define our, our C4 topography as innies and outies. Um, and here we found some, some really bizarre-looking outies. Uh, so this particular feature um, stood out to us. It's about... Um, about 60 feet high and 400 feet across, so about as large as any building on campus. Um, but it, it was very much out of place. Uh, and about a mile away, there was a whole series of things that, that looked somewhat similar, and they were these mound structures that also had, sorry, they were outies that had innies nearby. And so we, um, we decided to go and, and map these, look at them with the autonomous underwater vehicle, and sample with the submarine. And what we found, uh, this is a, a series of uh, pictures photo mosaically stitched together uh, going down the side of this. Um, and what you see is it's cracked and fissured here, but then there's these lobes that look like something flowed. And in fact, it did. It was, it was oil. It was tar. It was asphalt that emanated from this structure. And the entire structure is made out of asphalt, a massive asphalt volcano. 
um, now dormant sitting on the seafloor. And so we went, and, and this is what it looks like when you're up close, um, and we collected pieces that were this big that a person could hold. Massive pieces, but it's because it's uh, uh, made out of petroleum, it's very light, um, very light material. Um, so uh, that was a, an interesting find, and it just so happened that, that in discovering that, we managed to figure out how old they were. And we managed to date them to a time when all of the oxygen was removed from the ocean water out here, about 40,000 years ago. There's a massive die-off, and nobody had been able to figure out prior to that exactly what caused that die-off. And so what we have is a whole series of these features of oil and gas um, coming out into the ocean that are at the same time as this massive die-off. And so there's, there's some coincidence of occurrence there and perhaps a causality. So again, it's, it's discovery um, driving, um, driving knowledge. Okay, so um, we, uh, we moved there. That, that was a story about a couple of Audis. We're going to move to Innies. And um, this is about a mile or so down the road. We got interested uh, in, in some of these, these pit-like features. And so there's a whole series of them. This is a Google Earth view. So you can see there's these pits all along. Uh, this area, and that's not normal for the seafloor to have uh, this sort of pitting. Um, so we, we focused in um, and went to a number of these, and I'm just going to talk briefly about this one here, um, because we, we did a few interesting things there. Um, so this is what it looks like in a high-resolution map as captured by the autonomous underwater vehicle. Um, it's really a fairly smooth uh, pit structure, about 30 feet. It's a pit about 30 feet deep. Um, and so we were, we were curious about what formed it and um, why it was there. And so we started to um, do additional mapping. So what, the, what this is showing, each of these lines is the path of the autonomous underwater vehicle. Basically, we mowed the lawn with the autonomous vehicle. It just flew up and back and up and back and completely mowed the lawn through this pit. What the colors show are the intensity uh, of signals coming off of a mass spectrometer. Essentially, it's a measure of how much hydrocarbon is there in the water, with the hot colors telling you that there's hydrocarbon and the, the lighter colors, the darker colors, telling you that there's not much. Uh, so what this told us was that there was active hydrocarbon emission coming from this feature. Uh, at the same time, we took pictures with the autonomous vehicle. It flies over about nine feet off the bottom, and it has a stereo pair camera, and it snaps overlapping pictures thousands upon thousands of them. And with that, we began to look at um, mapping of the habitat that existed in this site and trying to characterize what, what are the different habitats, what is the ecosystem that exists inside of this, this, uh, this innie here on the seafloor. And what we found were uh, a few things. One, quite a bit of bubbling, that there was bubbling uh, gas that was bubbling out from within this pit. Um, throughout a good portion of it, and that there were bacterial mats that existed. So patches of bacteria growing on the seafloor that were visible uh, in the images that are living off of all of these hydrocarbons that are emanating from beneath. So we're learning something about this ecosystem uh, through exploration. Okay, so um, the, the third... Um, uh, set of, of Audis now that uh, we got interested in. We're moving further to the west uh, over to this area here. So here's UCSB uh, right over here. So this is, um, this is at about 1,300 feet water depth. And there was a conspicuous series of mounds. So we sent the autonomous vehicle first uh, and did some very detailed mapping of this site to get high-resolution bathymetry. And we came back with something that looks 
pretty bizarre for a seafloor environment. Um, so zooming in, um, this is a couple of kilometers. That's a one-kilometer scale bar. So this is really a, more than a mile across. These are pretty good-sized features. And when you zoom in on them, you see a, a number of similarities between each of them. They're clearly formed by the same process. Uh, there's a, a central cone um, that's higher, that's raised up, and then there's a series of what look like boulders that are strewn around it in this circular pattern, and then it drops down to the, the seafloor um, down deeper. So we, um, we went and did some very high-resolution uh, photo imaging. So we took one of these and we mowed the lawn very tightly to get, uh, in this case, over 30,000 pictures and stitched them together as a photo mosaic. So this is a single photo mosaic that we're now doing a fly-through of what one of these features actually looks like when it's restitched together. And so you can see now that there's even more feature. There's these concentric rings that go around that central feature. Um, there's the, the white patches or bacteria, and then there's these, these mound structures, which when we went down with the remotely operated vehicle and started sampling, we found were um, entirely made out of crystallized tar. Uh, this entire thing, it's a thin veneer of sediment, so about that much sediment over it, and then underneath it is a, a crystalline form of petroleum hydrocarbon. Um, this, uh, in false color, it, this is just showing the high-resolution bathymetry. Because we're using a stereo pair camera, the camera itself tells you all of the altitudes, all of the heights, and so you can get very detailed um, bathymetric maps or charts based on just the, the camera itself on this vehicle. Um, Okay, so that was the, the first vignette about innies and outies, and I'm going to move on and talk about um, other forms of discovery. So the, the first one I want to talk about comes from a very interesting terrain, uh, what I call a microbial terrain, uh, here off the coast of Santa Monica, off of Los Angeles. Um, and here is the, uh, uh, the, a very similar photo mosaic of this site. So this is a, a mound structure that comes up about, about 60 feet off the seafloor, uh, and it's pretty long. The entire thing's about a mile in length. Uh, and as it turns out, this site has been created by the action of microorganisms over geologic time. Microorganisms of the domain Archaea produce methane in the deep subsurface beneath the seafloor. That methane has migrated to this spot, and when it meets water there, it forms a solid called a methane hydrate. That causes a volumetric expansion, and over time, the more methane, the more the whole thing volumetrically expands, and it forms a hill. Now, at the top of that hill, you may have noticed there was a ridge. That ridge is made out of calcite, which is a mineral. That mineral is formed from another microorganism that eats the methane and converts it into calcite. So you have this, this hill being formed by microbial methane, and then that microbial methane is eaten and forms the solid mineral ridges on the hill. So the entire thing is a microbial terrain. So we were very interested in these microorganisms of the domain Archaea, that's the, the third and lesser known domain of life. And so we sampled, we used the submarine to, to sample uh, these communities of organisms. And in this case, we came across a very interesting virus. What we, what we did is that we took the sample, we incubated it back in the lab, and then we pulled off the microorganisms that were in the sample, those that were eating the methane, and we got their viruses as well. Uh, we concentrated the viruses, we broke them apart, and we sequenced their genomes and compiled all of that back together to get a complete genome for uh, 
uh, what is probably the first anaerobic methane oxidizing virus. The virus itself doesn't oxidize the methane, but it infects the organisms that do. And so in discovering this virus through this, this mechanism, uh, we found a number of interesting traits. One, it had the ability to self-mutate its tail fiber tips. That's an offensive countermeasure for a virus to overcome host defense. And we had an idea, an inkling of who this virus infected, not only from the environment that we got it from and the way that we fed it, but also because it contained genetic motifs that are specific to the domain archaea. And so this is, the virus itself is telling us uh, who it infects. Um, and so that was purely uh, based on discovery, based on exploration that we were able to identify this. And the, um, this motif, this ability to self-mutate, uh, it turns out that, that once we had recognized that ability in this virus, that we could then uh, recognize it in thousands of other organisms as well. And so it has opened up uh, a whole field of, of understanding um, for, uh, for this, this self-mutation process. Okay, so um, the, uh, the third vignette uh, that I'm going to talk about has to do with the dumping of chlorinated wastes. And back in the 1950s and 60s, uh, there was a lot of uh, dumping of industrial wastes off the coast, particularly in Southern California. Uh, and in this case, we had known that there had been some dumping of, uh, of DDT, which is a chlorinated pesticide, a uh, very famous chlorinated pesticide um, made, made infamous by Rachel Carson, and that uh, this dumping had occurred off of Los Angeles, and so we went looking for these sites because they'd never been characterized. So the site is, uh, that I'm going to talk about is located right here in the San Pedro Basin, about halfway between Long Beach and Catalina. So we, we sent down the autonomous underwater vehicle, and we used a, a series of approaches. This is side-scan sonar. And what we saw were these little dots. And that means there's something there, something on an otherwise barren seafloor uh, that, that is giving us a signal. We looked in the multi-beam, and if you really squint and then you overlay it with color, you start seeing more dots. So we sent down the autonomous underwater vehicle, uh, to, do, to take pictures, to do picture surveys. And what we found uh, was a dump site where all of these wastes had been dumped back in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s primarily. Uh, and so these are barrels. These are down about 3,000 feet water depth um, where, uh, where they have been sitting probably for more than, more than 50 years. So having identified these sites... Um, through with the autonomous underwater vehicle, we then sent down the remotely operated vehicle, and here's a picture from that vehicle, to uh, actually get samples from these sites. And I will show you a couple of minutes of um, sampling so you can get a feel for these sites. Um, so there were a number of bizarre features that we're trying to understand. Um, why are there these circles with white rims around them? Um, why are there growths coming off of the barrels? They look like uh, icicles. We call them toxicals. Um, what are these uh, mats? Those are mats of bacteria that are being sucked off of the tops of these barrels. What are they doing? Uh, and how much of the original pollutants are still present? Those are the sorts of questions that we've been trying to address um, with, this, uh, with this discovery. And this is some of the sampling that went along with that. 
Okay, so I have one final uh, vignette of discovery that I'll talk about, and that's, again, right off the coast here. So again, we have, I have Santa Barbara labeled, um, UCSB is here. And in this case, we were interested in the changes that occur to the seafloor uh, from the 1,800 feet deep basin, uh, which has no oxygen, up to the very productive shelf of the continent um, uh, on the Channel Island side. And so we sent the autonomous underwater vehicle on a path. It took roughly 40,000 overlapping images of the seafloor between the deepest portion of the basin and the surface. And this is what those images look like. This is uh, down deep. It's dark, very hard to see. Uh, sometimes there's dead stuff that has fallen. Uh, once you get into the shallow water, you can see there's all sorts of sea stars, there's sea pens, there's fish. Uh, it's very productive and rich. So you have nothing at depth because there's no oxygen, and you have a lot on the continental uh, shelf because you have a, a productive ecosystem. What was interesting to us is what we found in between, and that is shown here. Um, and what this is is a thick mat of white bacteria that completely coat the seafloor for about two kilometers of, of transit, uh, completely coat it. Uh, so we, we got interested in, in what these were doing, and we, we have some ideas about that. Um, and one of the things that we did is tried to estimate what the spatial distribution of these might be. And so we took, this is the average color uh, as collected by the, the photoimaging survey. And then we overlaid it on the bathymetry, because we know this is a depth-related phenomenon. And what it gives is a ring structure of about 106 kilometers in circumference. Uh, which could be the world's largest bacterial colony, potentially, uh, if, it, uh, if it bears true. Okay, so um, with that, that was the, my last vignette of discovery. Um, so what I, what I hope um, that you got from this, and I know it was a little fast-paced, is a, a little bit of appreciation for the complexity of uh, the seafloor off Southern California, um, a little bit of understanding of what exploration tools are out there and available uh, for scientists, um, and a, an understanding of, of the natural seepage process uh, that's putting oil and gas into the channel out here that, uh, that you probably get on your feet when you walk the beach. Um, maybe an understanding that, uh, that the ocean is chocked full of bacteria and viruses and archaea, the third domain of life, and their viruses. Um, and, uh, and perhaps even a, an appreciation that, uh, that we have a legacy of ocean dumping that, uh, that we're really going to have to deal with in the, in the coming decades. Um, and so, but really what I, I hope you, you get out of this is um, really what I started with, that discovery through exploration is important to scientific advancement. And it has to be balanced with hypothesis-driven research, uh, because without combining the two, you don't make the advances um, as you do um, when you have them together. So with that, I'm going to um, uh, acknowledge a number of people. We have a number of folks from my lab here in the audience, uh, Frank Kinneman uh, among them, who was instrumental in a number of these things. Um, but, uh, but particularly the data that I pulled from today involved a number of students and postdocs, Blair Paul, Sarah Bagby, Birch Fisher, and Veronica Kevenson. Uh, also a number of collaborators, Chris Reddy, Dana Yerger, Carl Kaiser, Rich Camilli, and Oscar Pizarro, 
And of course, none of this would be possible without the funding mechanisms that are available uh, to do science that we have today. The National Science Foundation, Department of Energy, and the Moore Foundation have, have been generous to me. Uh, and of course, the vessels and crew uh, of the Atlantis, the, the Jason, the Alvin, uh, and the Century. And with that, I thank you very much for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.